Welcome to the New Life Church Podcast, where we dive deep into the timeless truths of the Bible. My name is Jake, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be your host. In each of these episodes, we'll unpack the richness of the scriptures, exploring how its teachings can bring new life and meaning to our everyday existence. Get ready to be inspired, challenged, and uplifted as we navigate the profound wisdom of the Bible together. This is a place where faith meets daily life. This is New Life Church. There are different kinds of dogs. There's city dogs and there's country dogs. But if you can tell the difference by people who live in the city, live in the suburbs, their dogs are constantly pulling at the leash. They constantly want to escape and experience and make trouble and break break leash and go out and do stuff. And so when they do break the leash or get away and escape, um, then you, they have to be yelled at. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You gotta be corralled, gotta be chased down, gotta be bribed with a, with a treat, right? And then finally got back to where they could be pounced on and then put back into their captivity, right? That's a lot of city dogs, you know, particularly. And then there's old country dogs. And you probably would have liked to have seen the last of him, you know? Yeah, but he, he doesn't run away. You know, he goes and does his thing a little bit, but he comes right back. And he really is kind of underfoot. And he just likes to sit up on the, uh, on the porch because that old country dog has wrestled with a skunk and gotten sprayed. And he's gone without a meal or two. And he's been outside in the cold on a winter day. And he's had his fill. And that country dog likes to be near the master. He likes to sit up on the, sun himself on the porch near where the source of food and shelter and protection is. And then you got the city dog, you know, he's been so spoiled with that, that he strains against it. And I feel that us as Christians, I, I, you know, don't we have a tendency to be confined by the rules and regulations and laws and preaching sometimes and like, uh, and just we feel restrained. We feel like we're kind of, what can I get away with here? Or like, do I have to do that? Do I have to go there? Do I, what, what exactly how far does my leash go? Because I, I'd like to do these things, but I know I need to be good. But if I could just ever break the leash, and if I could, if I could find a loophole, if I could find a way to get out there, I would do it because that's where my heart says what I want. And we can be that way as Christians. But I want to encourage some folks today. Sin is destructive, and it hurts you, and it hurts the people you love, and it hurts God. And there's no end to it. Sin is a monster. The things that are not like God. And so I'm, right now I want to try to blow up a theology that is so elusive that I've been boxing with it for 20 years. You know, and I have all the boilerplate theology book answers. Thank you very much. I don't, but I wanted something, I wanted the heart to speak to me a little bit more. And that's why God allows difficult things to happen and wounding things to happen to good people. And then bad people seem to have all the luck and all the blessing and all the money, right? And so that, as much as I have all the right theology, um, 
I want to wrestle with the heart of it. And also why it is that God hates sin so much that he'll allow my sin to separate me from him for eternity. That's a big question. And the best and most powerful quote that I've ever heard um, on this was James Bryan Smith. And he said this, he said, well, the, the setup is that God hates sin because he's good. He said, I want a God who hates the things that hurt me. He wouldn't be good if he didn't. I, when my very low-key love for my family and son compared to what God's love is for me, I hate anything that hurts them. Anything that would come to hurt Judah, I hate that thing. Now, I don't hate people because, you know, kids, you know, whatever, like, you know, like that's not that. But I hate anything that at its core, its identity is the hurting and the wounding of the people that I love. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be a good father. If I didn't hate the things that bring suffering and pain and, and hardship and woundedness to my wife, I would not be a good husband. I hate anything that hurts the people that I love. God hates anything that hurts you. Huh. I thought he just like kind of had a bunch of stuff that he liked and a bunch of rigorous, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, go do this and you'll go here and sit and, you know, and, 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 he, and then he hated me for not being, you know, like, the, it's not what the scripture's about. It's not what the heart of God is about. The only things, let me think, check me on this, you Bible readers. Name one thing that God hates that would be good for us. Doesn't hate marriage, doesn't hate family, doesn't hate blessing, doesn't hate wholeness and healing, doesn't hate anything that would be good for us, truly good. Wow. God doesn't hate anything good and he doesn't love anything bad except for me and you. But even that, he gave his only begotten son that we might be saved. So for some of you who maybe this is not the type of teaching or preaching or style of delivery, that's your, your thing, well, maybe I'll kick and scream next time, but we're doing some deep, deep teaching and shifting some things around. How much should I read? How much should, how much should I perform? Well, as much as you want to, but let me ask you this. What do you want? I have to go back to that now because I feel like I need to go back to that. What do you want? What do you actually want? Not what do people want for you? What do you think God wants for you? What do you want to want? What do you want? Some people have lived their whole life in church and never faced that question one time. Not really, because they were afraid of the answer. And that's why they never changed. They never did really act like Christ because they never really were. because they never faced the fact that all the good that they did was being performative and it was coming from a place of performance rather than a place of just simply being in simple existence. And that's why they had, and I'm not talking about salvation, actually. 
I'm not talking about soteriology. I'm not talking about the fact that, um, you know, are those people saved or not saved? Well, if, if they've given their heart to life and you know, to Jesus and ask him to repent, and, uh, yeah, let's put salvation right here and then we'll leave it right there for a second. And we're gonna talk about being conformed to the image of Christ. The deep and true transformation. I would say that a lot of people got on the plane and never left the runway. And that may be you, and that's not a condemnation. That's an invitation. Amen. It's an invitation to put it into gear and see how far and how pure and how good the journey with God really can be and should be. And then you'll feel so much better. You'll feel so great. You'll love it because it won't be you trying to um, trying to push the plane. <laughs> you know, to be, oh yeah, we're doing good. We're making it happen. It's going great. It's going it's like no, it's not. Spiritually, emotionally, and uh, in in the way that you actually are as a person, it really like yeah. Okay, let's say that you are saved and you have received Christ and you know, forgiveness for your sins. You're going to go to heaven. But how far down the runway did you actually get with your formation in Christ? And I've even seen people go into ministry still unformed. Oh, what a Herculean effort that is to not only feel like that you need to pretend to be saved, but in ministry and pouring out to others. And we're doing it like 95% in our own strength because we haven't undergone the depth and breadth of the transformation that Jesus really has for us. That is so exhausting. I can't even think about it without getting, you know, messed up. I'm inviting some people and if somebody, one or two says, yes, this is gonna change you more than any hot and powerful altar service where your emotions were fully engaged and you were excited could ever change you because you may face the final question, how much do I really want to be like Christ? And until you're willing to face that and to ask that, you'll never even get, get the car in gear. talk to you about heaven and hell real quick. Um, creation, and this is going to be the most clumsy illustration of all time, perhaps. Creation is a house with a basement and an upstairs. And because of Satan's choice, his willful rebellion against God, God had to create a place for him that is disconnected from everyone else and everything else. Hell's in the basement. Right? How you like that? Some, that's some high you know, Augustinian theology. Hell's in the basement. Because God had to, in order to have a heaven, he had to have a hell because of rebellion. Isn't that interesting? In order for God to bring kingdom and to have heaven, he has to have hell because of the willful rebellion of Satan. Because Satan, man, let me, I will preach to you for a second here now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a part of the Lord's prayer. And so while he's bringing, while God seeks to bring kingdom, perfection, holiness, goodness, life and life more abundantly, he, that is his heart. He said, life, my kingdom, I want to bring my kingdom. Well, guess what? Satan is bringing kingdom as well. And, and, and we actually read that in the Bible because Jesus himself says, um, you know, I'm not casting out devils and demons by the power of Satan because he has a kingdom. And how can a kingdom that's divided against itself stand? So Satan is also bringing kingdom.
into every place that he touches and every place that he is given willful dominion, every place where people will entertain him. He brings kingdom just as much as God brings kingdom in this battlefield, which is the earth, which is the world, which is this time. And so as one ruler brings kingdom, so another brings kingdom. And these kingdoms are at war. And so God literally, like not because he's not strong enough, but because by nature, he cannot bring heaven without there being a hell. Because we got to have somewhere where Satan is. Because anything that he is connected to, anything that he is adjacent to, anything that he has a voice in or any influence in, he will bring hell. Now he brought hell and tried to bring hell to heaven and he got kicked out for it. He tried to bring hell to earth and he will pay the penalty. But he's brought his kingdom. It's the kingdom of the power of the air. He brought hell to earth. And God is saying, no more. Soon I will send my son and clothed in glory and power and I will put an end to it for all time. I am sick of Satan bringing hell while I'm trying to bring heaven. He's going far away. He's going to go to a lake of fire. He's about to be done. I'm sick and tired of it. We will have heaven. Yes. I'm sorry, Satan, but the hell will stop. Because my kingdom will come. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the heart of God. Now in this in the in the house though you cannot have hell with heaven without hell because of rebellion right now some people believe in annihilationism no that's not biblical so back to that you have to have hell so downstairs in the basement is where he's been sent now technically by our performance we can't go to heaven either without bringing a little bit of hell with us because of rebellion and sin that we have committed all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are lost in sin. So we can't, we, we have to go. But because of the incredible goodness and love of God, what he has done is he has sent Jesus to live a perfect sinless life and die on a cross and be resurrected in glory that the blood shed would be the propitiation for our salvation that we don't have to go downstairs. We can stay upstairs with a holy God because the blood. And now the question is, because you've had this cheeky question, some of you. Why would a good deal with sin? Why, why didn't you know, just because I do what I want to do? Why would you send me to hell? Okay. No, God has a question for you. After I've gone all through all this effort to welcome you and to let you stay upstairs, why are you going downstairs? Let's give God the microphone for a second. And God says, why do you want to go to the basement? I made it possible for you to stay up here. I didn't do that for Satan. And I literally had to create hell so that I could separate you from him. This is not for you. This is not, you, you, this, you don't have a bed down there. You don't have a room. This is not for you, it's for him. The Bible actually, you, want, you want, let me blow this up real quick. There's literally a verse in the Bible that said, hell hath enlarged its borders. And God is saying this, I am going to have to build another room if you want to go. Because I don't have one for you, because it's not for you. Why? Would, why? I'm going to have to, you're not even in the plans. I'm going to have to build a place if you want to go. But in my house, many mansions. 
I, I literally have a place that I'm working on for you right now. Why do you not want to be with me? Why do you? Why are the sins of the flesh and the stupid stuff that is already wounding you and hurting you? There's literally nothing in the Bible that I set up for you uh, that, that would hurt you. Everything I tell you to do is going to bless you. You're out of your mind. And sin has clouded your judgment and your reality. You're not supposed to go to hell. You're not. You're supposed to go to heaven. I'm building a place. In there, I have to build on like a, a, a little shack of a room for you to enjoy your time with Satan for eternity, which I don't want. Up here, I built a whole house. I built many mansions. Does that change the way that you look at heaven and hell? Some of you have been in church for a long time. You never heard it like that. You never heard anybody say anything that elementary and childish, but clear. Said, it's not, I have not prepared a place in the basement for you. I prepared a place with me. So, uh, what, what is it Dallas Willard says? I think it was him that said, um, whenever people on earth, they say, uh, they, they refuse to serve God, they refuse to be saved. Um, they refuse to say, God, thy will be done. Then on judgment day, he has no choice but to say, child, thy will be done depart go to the place that you so desperately wanted to go against me cutting against the blood and the cross it wasn't my heart but it was your choice and I have to honor it that's the truth amen what is faith evidence and substance is that immediately where your mind goes I would propose to you an, an additional, not a different, but an additional way to look at faith and believing in God. Faith is a trusting response to a known love. It is a trusting response to a known love. And I propose to you, your faith in God cannot be any more than your revelation of his love. You can't trust God to be good any more than you know him to be good. I don't think we caught that. You cannot trust God with things that you don't believe that he's good on. You can't really have that faith. Faith is only a trusting response to a known love. And I want to teach you about the person who showed more faith than anybody in the history of the world. Because it's hard to have faith whenever things are going bad, right? When the people you love are suffering, we could compare stories and say, who has it the hardest, who has it the worst? There are people right in here today that are facing giants who shouldn't have to. And in the world God designed, they never would have. But Satan and sin. So they have a lot of reason to have their faith shaken. We're walking through darkness. We're walking through poverty. We're walking through rejection. We're walking through abuse and trauma. And so it can shake the foundations of faith, yeah? When things are just not adding up and you're trying to serve God, but he's, you're serving him through all this rejection, all these problems, right? That can shake your faith. Am I just talking to me? So let me teach you about Jesus real quick. Because this, you know, this is just something I've been thinking a lot about. No, never before in all of history has there been more faith shown than Jesus on the cross. Because 
a lack of faith is the breakdown in belief in the system of good. It's when, we, it's when there's a breakdown in believing God. That's the lack of faith, you know? And they say, he did not do many miracles because they're in belief, right? It's a lack of being able to believe in the goodness of God and that he is who he is and does what he does. And whenever we have a personal crisis, right? Whenever we walk through a time of brokenness, isolation, poverty, whatever it may be, our faith can be shaken. And what that shaking is, is we're having a hard time reconciling the bad that is with the good that is God. And that's when our faith is put to the test. So let me paint this picture of Jesus for you. Who performed better than Jesus on this earth? Nobody, nobody, no, no close second. Nobody else in the race. Everybody else disqualified at the starting line, right? Jesus is the perfect performer. He was good and he did good. And he was awesome and he was kind and he was loving and he was a healer and he was, he was pure and he was honest and he was fair and he was never judgmental. He was never cruel. He was always kind. He was so good, right? Jesus was the best. It's not close. So who deserved for good to happen to them? Jesus and Jesus alone. So we find him on the cross of Calvary in his beautiful hands, which had only ever healed and embraced and loved and helped up those hands, guys, those hands that opened up the blinded eyes. They never hit anybody in anger, never stole something. They were only nothing but good. They were so good. They were better than we know how to be. And they were stretched out and violently and callously pierced with a nail. And the back and the beard and the visage, the mouth that had only ever spoken love and grace and forgiveness and good things to good people and bad things only to bad people. He rebuked the hateful. That mouth, he was beaten. His lips mashed and his visage bruised for our iniquities. What in the world? He was so good. And he received the worst treatment imaginable. And so in that moment on the cross, this Eli, Eli, sabachthani, lama sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you turning your back on me? Why, your, your good son, why? And in that moment, it is almost, it would be impossible for us to have faith because faith is to believe in the good of God. How can I be in that moment as Jesus and still think God is good? And I'll tell you how, and I'll tell you why, and it may change your world. Because he knew him so deeply. He was so connected to his father that even being stretched to the point of 
all confusion and not believing. There's no way you could believe that God's good because I've done nothing but good and I'm being tortured to death on this cruel cross for sins I didn't commit. I'm literally being tortured for doing good and I've never done anything wrong. That is what Jesus has to reconcile in his brain, in his mind, in his heart as he lay there dying. But faith is a response to a known love. He knew who Jesus was. Jesus knew who his father was and he loved his father. And he said, I know you so deeply that even now I do not question your love. He said, though I be tortured, though I'm dying, though I'm bleeding out on a cruel cross, I'm in pain and I know that I'm rejected. You've even turned your back on me, but I know you so deeply, even in this moment, even in this time, even in my isolation, even in my valley, even in my poverty, even in my woundedness, even in my abuse, I know you so deeply, God, that I, this is a, this is, it's a believing response to a known love because I have seen your face when you were looking at me. I have felt your love. I've been connected to you. I know who you are, God. And even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in my isolation, even in my woundedness, even in my sin and, and the destruction and the problems and the things that I'm going through that I don't deserve. I did the right things. But I know you, God. I know your heart. And I know that though the, the life to me is bad, your thoughts toward me are good. And I have that response. That's faith. A trusting response to a known love. And that's how you can walk through what you're walking through and still maintain your belief in God's goodness. Today, Pastor Job provided deep insight into the profound concept of faith, not merely as a blind belief, but as a trusting response to a known love. Even in our darkest moments, when life seems unfair and our circumstances make us feel helpless, our faith can remain unshaken. The key is knowing the God we serve and understanding His character and becoming more and more familiar with His love. Our faith is not built on the absence of trials, but on a profound connection with a God whose thoughts toward us are always good. This week, seek that deeper connection with God and immerse yourself in Him so that knowing Him will be the anchor that steadies your faith. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the New Life Church Podcast. We are truly grateful for each and every one of our listeners, so thank you. For a full transcription of today's sermon and more resources, head over to our website at newlifechurchspringfield.com. I can't wait to dive into the next episode with you. Until then, stay connected, stay inspired, and God bless. See you next time.